It's six o'clock on the dot, and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, November 30th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, a well on Madison's east side may soon reopen and make history. The race to fill the role of Dane County Executive heats up. We learn why state lawmakers are trying to change the laws around electric vehicle charging. And in the second half, we'll talk crochet, cutting down on your energy consumption, and carceral justice. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The median pay for teachers across the state has fallen more than 12% in inflation-adjusted terms since 2009. With the limits placed on school district revenue in the most recent state budget, that deficit will likely persist. That's according to a new study from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research organization. Using information from the State Department of Public Instruction, the study found that a teacher earning median pay earned $67,536 in 2009 and when adjusted for inflation. In 2023, the median pay is $59,250, a loss of 12.3%. Part of that decline stems from the wave of retirements by senior teachers at the top of the pay scale when Act 10 was passed into law in 2011. That law eliminated collective bargaining for teachers and many other public employees. Also, 8% of teachers on average have been resigning from public school systems every year since 2009, the forum reports, adding that the turnover rate has been accelerating in 2022 and 2023. Turnover has been highest in both urban and rural school districts. One in 10 Wisconsin school children have not received all the vaccinations required to attend class in the past school year, according to data from the State Department of Health Services. That information, also compiled by the Wisconsin Policy Forum, finds that some 90,000 K-12 students in public and private schools are not fully immunized against measles, hepatitis B, polio, and other communicable diseases. That percentage is considerably higher than in years prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the forum reports. In the school years between 2013 and 2018, fewer than 8% of students had incomplete vaccination records. Kansas City Chiefs fans arriving for Sunday's game against the Green Bay Packers may feel a particular chill in the air radiating from the nearby Oneida Nation. Chiefs fans' practice of wearing headdresses and face paint to games, as well as their chants and tomahawk chop gestures, are disrespectful to Indigenous Americans, says Tribal Vice Chairman Branded Yellowbird Stevens. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the Chiefs are under growing pressure from Native American advocates to abandon its nickname in favor of one that does not identify with Native culture. The Chiefs organization has banned the wearing of headdresses and face paint from its home games, but the Packers have no such policy. A meeting of University of Wisconsin student organization was interrupted this week by a group of people harassing organization members and making racist comments, Channel 3000 reports. The disruptive group, members of whom were not affiliated with the university, 
entered the Campus Humanities Building on Tuesday and confronted the meeting with anti-Arab and anti-Asian statements. Campus police have reportedly identified those involved, but ask witnesses they haven't interviewed to contact them, according to the university. Hackers breaking into the computer system of the Rock County Department of Human Services made off with sensitive information about clients and employees, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. A so-called ransomware attack produced the security breach, according to County Administrator Josh Smith, who said the county and its insurers have not complied with the $1.9 million ransom the hackers have demanded. Smith said services the department provides are continuing as usual. The data obtained in the break-in includes social security numbers, birth dates, medical information, driver's license numbers, financial account information, and health insurance information. The county said those affected will receive a notice in the mail with guidance and free credit monitoring if requested. Ridership on Madison's metro system has surpassed 1 million rides for the first time since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the city of Madison reports. The 20% increase in ridership comes in spite of a policy change where Madison middle school students no longer ride on the metro to class. On a monthly basis, ridership is at its highest since February 2020, the report states. And now, on to today's top stories. Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard announced her run for Dane County Executive this morning. She'll face Madison Alder Regina Vitiver in the race to fill the position that will be vacant when Joe Parisi resigns next spring. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. There are now two candidates in the race for Dane County Executive, State Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard and Alder Regina Vitiver, both of Madison. They're running to fill a seat that would be vacant when the current Dane County Executive, Joe Parisi, resigns next year. Parisi will step down from the role in May 2024, a year before his term was set to end. The timing of Parisi's retirement means that a new Dane County Executive can't be elected until November 2024. In the interim, County Board Chair Patrick Miles is tasked with appointing an interim executive, subject to the Dane County Board's approval. Whoever is elected in November would go up for election again in April 2025. At a press conference at the Madison Labor Temple this morning, Senator Agard announced her candidacy. The full-time legislator has represented the Madison area in the State House for over a decade, most recently as a state senator and Senate minority leader. She's championed progressive legislation like cannabis legalization and addressing the sexual assault kit backlog. Prior to her role in the Senate, Agard served on the state assembly and was a Dane County board supervisor. Agard says she has built relationships with people in Dane County over her years working in county and state politics. Even as a state senator, she represented large areas of Dane County, including Sun Prairie, Fitchburg, McFarland, Monona, and parts of Madison. She says that the county government plays a large role in people's lives, from overseeing the lakes and the landfill to managing the Dane County Airport and Alliant Energy Center. County government ensures that um, the most vulnerable people in the community know that they matter and that their needs are going to be able to be taken care of. Agard points to the Bayview Housing Project in Madison as the kind of collaborative project that the Dane County Executive will need to foster in order to address housing affordability. 
in Dane County, it's vitally important, especially with the amount of in-migration that we have, um, that we are prioritizing access to safe, affordable housing um, and housing that has true wraparound services. That is a collaborative uh, mission that we need to be doing with our municipalities, with our local governments as well. Agard also says she would support mental health and addiction services with an emphasis on preventative services. As someone who lost my dear younger brother to a fentanyl poisoning, it is vitally important that we figure out how it is um, that we support people with addiction and mental health issues. Um, I know that my family story is not unique and that there are so many people in Dane County that have empty chairs and broken hearts uh, because of uh, the opioid crisis in the United States and making sure that we are investing that money in a way that honors the lives that are lost um, and prevents future life loss is really important. Whoever fills the role of Dane County Executive will be involved in managing the budget. The recently adopted budget for 2024 reached nearly $1 billion. Madison Alder Regina Vitiver, a self-described servant leader, says she is in a good position to take on the role of Dane County Executive and oversee this large and expansive budget. She points out that she has over 25 years of experience in health fields and management. Alder Vitiver commends the current Dane County Board for their investment in the Affordable Housing Fund and sees new ways to expand affordable housing. And then working on future land banking opportunities is also a place. Um, and probably giving more support to our towns where they have a little bit less infrastructure to be able to uh, make sure that they have the capacity to also be part of the solution for affordable housing. Alder Vitiver also points to the work that Dane County Public Health is doing to address the opioid crisis. We need to think about it from all levels, not just from a public health perspective, but also a housing perspective, also a you know law enforcement perspective, and how are we really trying to create space so that people don't feel the need to turn to substances to ease their pain, um, and that when they do, that we are doing everything we can to reduce harm. Alder Vitiver envisions the Dane County Executive as a convener of services across the community. In addition to supporting public health and affordable housing projects, she says she would foster collaborations that could further expand CARE's mental health crisis services across the county. Other elected officials are already launching campaigns to fill Senator Agard's position. State Representative Melissa Ratcliffe of Cottage Grove announced that she will run for Agard's Senate seat next fall. Agard's position as Senate Minority Leader will also become available. Several senators have already expressed interest in this leadership position, which the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel describes as fulfilling a crucial role in shaping the future of Wisconsin's legislative maps ahead of the Wisconsin Supreme Court's redistricting ruling. The race for Dane County Executive will coincide with the presidential election in November 2024. If another candidate enters the race, that would set the stage for a primary in August. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. The City of Madison plans to install Wisconsin's first municipal PFAS treatment system. That means they'll be able to reopen a well on Madison's east side that has been shut down for years. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story. After more than four years out of commission, Well 15 may resume water utility services as early as the summer of 2025. And reopening the well won't just take the pressure off of Madison's water system, it'll also make history. On Tuesday, the Water Utility Board reviewed a nearly $6 million construction proposal from AECOM, a multinational infrastructure consulting firm, 
to implement a PFOS treatment system in the out-of-commission well. The project proposal still needs to make its way through the Common Council, with a meeting scheduled for next Tuesday, but the city may not have to pay a single cent for construction. That's as, earlier this summer, two chemicals and manufacturing companies agreed to settle with water providers across the country. DuPont, based in Wilmington, Delaware, agreed to a $1.2 billion settlement, and 3M, based in St. Paul, Minnesota, agreed to pay $10.3 billion. Both manufacturers have manufactured or continue to manufacture products containing PFOS, the forever chemicals that have been linked to higher rates of cancer and cannot be broken down naturally. They're generally used for non-stick products, various plastics, some clothing, and, most notably, firefighting foam. Wisconsin's Department of Natural Resources attributes much of the local PFOS contamination to Truax Airfield, where firefighting foam used in training drills seeped into the nearby groundwater. 3M has said they will stop manufacturing forever chemicals by 2025, reports Isthmus newspaper. And, according to DuPont's website, they eliminated PFOS manufacturing in the U.S. in 2015. The city of Madison's water utility joined dozens of other municipalities to receive a fraction of those settlements, getting $3 million from 3M and half a million from DuPont. They'll also get $3 million from the state's Safe Drinking Water Loan Program. That loan program, according to the city's water utility public information officer, Marcus Pearson, is actually a bit of a misnomer. We have a loan that is about $6 million with them, which will go to capital and operational budget and projects like that. But half of that money will be forgiven, so to speak, on that loan. So that's about $2.95 million, about half the cost. In 2019, the city proactively shut down Well 15, which supplied 1 billion gallons of water to Madison residents each year after they detected PFOS chemicals, along with other volatile organic compounds in the supply. We don't want to risk contaminating the rest of our system, but also, you know, contaminating the bodies of all of our customers and, and the almost 300,000 people we serve. He adds that Madison's water system was able to function even without Well 15 in operation. With 23 drinking water wells and over 900 miles of pipeline in the city, you know, our system is built to be able to shift when we need to, and especially in case of emergency or a big fire or something like that. The city of Madison would be the first municipality in the state to implement a PFOS treatment system. AECOM, the proposed consultant for the project, has assisted numerous other municipalities in the past. Pearson says he's hopeful that the treatment process will be effective, explaining. If you think about a Brita filter or like a, some water bottles that can filter water, they basically use a very, very tiny version of what we'll have. We'll essentially have six tanks of this granular uh, activated carbon that'll basically filter out. So as the water is pumped in, it'll go through these tanks. So basically they exchange ions with this PFOS, which is a long chain kind of contaminant chemical. They break down the chemical chain and, and there's no way to break down this chemical naturally. Initially, Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General Josh Call opposed this settlement agreement. Call joined a coalition of attorneys general across the country who argued that DuPont's $1.2 billion settlement does not sufficiently cover the company's liability. But they eventually agreed to the settlement terms after DuPont clarified that states could pursue further litigation and recover more money from the company. Pearson says that the settlement terms do not concern him. Instead, we can't necessarily think about what other people's opinions are, what they're doing for their community. If this is going to pay for us to get one of our most important historic wells back online, we see no issue with it. Construction on the treatment project is expected this coming spring. 
Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The time is now 621 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. state law on electric vehicle charging station is getting in the way of federal funding. Lawmakers are circulating a bill that, if passed, could free up almost $80 million. Andrew Ball is a state politics reporter at the Capitol Times. He recently published a story on the topic and shared some insight with WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier this week. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Hey, happy to be here. So to start, can you give us an overview of electric vehicle data in Wisconsin? Where do we rank in terms of ownership compared to other states? There definitely have been trends showing that EV ownership in Wisconsin is on the rise, but we still trail a lot of our neighboring states. So Minnesota, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin ranked 39th per capita in EV ownership according to data from the U.S. Department of Energy. So based off where we are population-wise, you would expect us to be a bit higher. And there are some reasons that people have speculated for why we've lagged, but you know, definitely I think EV advocates feel that there's some work left to be done there. And where do we rank when it comes to charging stations? So one of those big reasons why why people have speculated that we are lower on EV ownership is because of that charging infrastructure. There was a report that came out that has us, I believe, at 42nd the country for charging stations. So fairly low, and that's a big problem because if you have an EV, obviously you want to use it. You want to be able to get from point A to point B and know you're going to be able to take that trip, you know, being able to stop and charge up and get where you need to go safely and quickly. And this range anxiety, you know, a lot of people feel like it's why Wisconsin hasn't seen more growth in the number of people buying those EVs. Some state lawmakers are looking to improve those figures. They want to change the law so that private companies can charge drivers by the kilowatt hour. What is the current law when it comes to billing people charging their vehicles? Normally, if you have an EV, how you would pay to charge up is kind of like at a gas station. You you pull up, you plug in, and you pay based off how much electricity you use. But in Wisconsin, actually, the only people who can charge like that are utilities and how like big box stores or other places will get around that is you pay instead by the time. So if you charge for 10 minutes, you pay X amount of money. And this is a bit of a problem. People are worried that that kind of outdated language is keeping private businesses from making an investment and setting up charging stations, which can cost a lot of money. And so there has been that interest from legislators in changing that rule. It also could be a big deal with unlocking some federal money that's out there that uh, the hope is also will help kind of boost the infrastructure. To clarify, the federal funding, we don't have access to that because of the way that a lot of private charging stations run billing. Is that correct? So that federal money was doled out in the bipartisan infrastructure law, and it's about $78 million for Wisconsin. Yeah, you're exactly right that that kind of technical minute law actually is standing in the way of us accessing that funding. And 
78 million dollars could go a long way. The, the goal is to place charging stations along you know some of Wisconsin's most used roads, and they'd be fast charging stations, and and they would have to meet standards for reliability and speed. And people are worried that we might not be able to do that if if we can't get this law changed. Part of it is that they want private companies to be able to access this money, not just utilities. So they kind of built in this requirement to the federal law as a safeguard to make sure that it is really those private businesses who I think a lot of people would like to see making that investment, getting involved. They're also just you know talking to people who have EVs or people to consider buying an EV. There's just a sense of charging by the kilowatt hour is a, is a better way of doing it. You know, when you pull up to a gas pump and you fill up and it takes five minutes, you don't pay by, by the five minutes. Minutes, you pay based off how many gallons of gas you put in your tank. And I think they want to have that kind of consistency for electric vehicles as well. Are there any detractors of this legislation, people who don't think it's a good idea? There has been some struggles with this bill in the past, and it hasn't necessarily been with the notion of changing the kilowatt hour issue, but there kind of have been related EV issues that have gotten roped into it. Last legislative session, similar bill was introduced, but it was amended to prevent local municipalities, so like the city of Madison, from offering charging stations at all, except for, you know, if they have electric buses or electric cars in their city fleet, they could offer that, but, but no public-facing charging stations. And the most recent version of the bill, which uh, was circulated for co-sponsorship on Monday, takes a slightly different tactic where if you're the city of Madison, you can have slower charging stations in like a city parking garage, but not the fastest charging station. That's only going to be in the private sector. That has caused some concerns among folks who don't want to have any barriers in the place of local governments to roll out these charging stations. But that kilowatt hour issue has, has often not wound up being the sticking point in the past, which is kind of interesting. And have you heard of any bipartisan support so far? Do you think that this legislation is likely to pass? There certainly is bipartisan support for that general idea of changing that state law and, and hopefully getting that federal funding in. I think whether that will mean, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike both support this exact language kind of remains to be seen. But again, talking with folks in the Department of Transportation, which obviously is in the Evers administration, governor would have to sign this. They seem optimistic that lawmakers of all stripes are are hearing them out and that they'll get something that can be signed into law in, in time for March, which is kind of the deadline for getting this change made so we can access this federal funding. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Part of the argument for making some of these changes is that it's not necessarily government trying to mandate people to get EVs or mandate car companies to behave a certain way, but to try and remove some of the barriers for the private sector to meet this rising demand and hopefully present people with a real choice and a real option if they choose to buy EVs in the future. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thanks, Peg. And that was Faye Parks speaking with Andrew Ball, a state politics reporter at the Cap Times. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. On this week's edition of Out of the Box, we'll have more of guest host 
Kingston Robertson's conversation with James Morgan. James is the organizer at Moses, a local organization that focuses on creating change in the justice system and helping incarcerated folks adjust to life on the outside. Hello, everyone. This is Out of the Box Podcast, and I'm your host, Kingston Robertson, and I'm here with James Morgan. I'm currently the community organizer for an organization called Moses. With me personally, coming home and being able to say that I'm not going to do what I was once doing, which was successful for me. I thought it was successful, you know, even with all the things that come with it. I had the mind state that it was successful when I'm making this money, everybody loving you. But when you when you don't have nothing, there's no one there. So it's like when you come home and, you know, you have such a strong transformation takes a lot. You know, like just like even with the family, because the family goes through it with you. How do we come home from there and find that job or find that help? Like, where is the help? Well, number one, you got to figure out whether or not you are coming home. Does home exist for you out here anymore? Okay. And if it doesn't, how do you develop that? That takes a level of intentionality. It takes being able to say no and have your yes and no have the same power. Okay. In those spaces where the yes is acceptable. But then if I come and you have a specific request, will my no be just as acceptable? Okay, no, I'm not going to engage. You know, man, I'm no, man, bro, I'm not going to get high with you. You know, oh man, you scared you that person? No, but that's a decision that I made. That's in my best interest. Thank you. No, I am no longer that. I'm not only seeking to become someone else. I am someone else, and stand on that. Exercise that courage. Okay, to not be defined outside of who you are, but being able to define who you are from inside. That strength, that that that's what brings that character. That's what puts others on notice. Something. Yeah, so they gonna have to move different with you. Okay. So you know, or even if they don't move with you, let them move without you. You you know, your purpose is to stand on your values, your principles, your beliefs, your morals. And if other people aren't accepting of that, you know, let the message be. Last time you saw me, I was standing and headed in another direction. And that's transformation. That simple. Okay. Right. But then again, we are social creatures. So seek those environments where you're going to have those productive and positive interactions, the support for the transformation that you are in the process of instilling within yourself. Exhibit that to the best of your ability in your external person. You know, it takes a lot to have that transformation when it's so many things around you that can bring you back into what you know. You working a job or you came out here, you're trying to change the youth life. Things like that are, you know, not seen. So like with Moses, like you guys are bringing it to the table. How do you feel about being a part of that personally? It's a gift. I, I feel honored. You know, there are some criticisms with it come along with it. And, and I'm not going to say that it all feels good, but I didn't come into the space with the intentionality of merely feeling good. I knew that it was going to require right. a certain level of sacrifice. I knew that I was going to, re, you know, going to be pushed back. Coming into the space, I prepared myself for that. So, you know, it's easy to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. It may sound humorous to some people, and some people may say, man, yeah, I ain't trying to hear that. But I remember sitting in prison, man, and I watched this movie. And this character in, <laughs> in the Batman film said, wait till they get a load of me. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that out of a sense of arrogance. Yeah. But I know what I know. 
I know what I know, but I also know what I didn't know. And that's very important. Before then. That's very important. <sighs> and when you just said it, it opened my eyes. Because okay. it's like everything I didn't know yeah. is what was more important than what I did think I Because I didn't know much. So, right, 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 much. right. And see, we're always talking about I need to learn, 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 learn. But I discovered in that environment there was a lot that I had to unlearn. Ah, I had to create that space, you know, so that my brain, my, my brain could be able to begin to function in a healthy way. I ain't going to say normal because every brain is different. <laughs> okay. But it had to be able to function in a way that would allow me to understand, you know, the impact of these things that are outside of me and the way that they impact me, that the only way for me to be able to even begin to navigate them was I had to unlearn what had been taught to me, okay? Oh, man, some of it had to be totally destroyed. Yeah, I get it. You know, my generations go back before there was even a person who looked like me, uh, say, you know, like Malcolm would say, you know, who, you know, the Mayflower and all of these generations understand that genealogy. What happened? Where did I come from? Who am I? Okay. You know, understanding things like the, you know, the, the migration of black people from the South trying to escape slavery and Jim Crow and where were my family and people and all of that and understanding yeah. that to give it a sense of who I am. You know, be people being tell, telling me that I'm, I can't be educated because yeah, I'm a little black boy. Crazy. And then going back and understanding that my great grandparents were educators and teachers, you know, and, and, and tapping into that source of me, that curiosity, you know, why yeah. am I always with a book in my hand and reading, discovering those new things about my capacity and my power that had been stripped away from me, okay, through the culture, through the society, you know, through what I'm seeing here in a, in a lot of places around our country where our families and our kids and everything else are existing in these communities of confinement that are being built yeah. based on the language. Yeah, the steel and concrete shows up, but it's based on the language. And who's determining that? Who's designing the maps on whose vote matters and whose don't, you know? And so, you know, let's get back into Moses here for a minute because right. those are the things that we focus on. You know, the mapping, the gerrymandering of the maps and whose vote counts and how and why and why it's important to vote to change our situations and circumstances in these communities and in our neighborhoods. OK, educating people, understanding that that educational situation of that institution right. belongs to us and we need to hold people accountable. I to had that. just recently learned from going to a few events and, and being, you know, curious of what's really going on behind the scenes, because like I say, behind the scenes is where most things are being done the right way. A lot of people on probation cannot vote. If you got 20 years of probation, you your voice, you're not heard. OK, well, let me ask you a question quick. Just a quick question. While you were incarcerated, and this is my experience, I never had a single individual while I was incarcerated say, man, I want to no. get my right to vote. I mean, back. you, me personally, didn't care to vote. Oh, there you go. You know, there's a narrative in our community uh, historically that yeah, I we ain't, we have for this or we this one. You know, and we, and we look at one temps right. and one. Right. But, you know, resources. Resources, man. National elections is one thing. Your local elections is something totally different. That's where you get your roads repaired. That's where you get your financing for your schools, housing, all of that. You know, so we, we focus on education, educating people in those areas. You know, if you've got, you know, here and particularly here in Madison, you know, the people that we got making decisions right now really don't care about none of us. 
That was Kingston Robertson's conversation with James Morgan, a local organizer who's working to shift the narrative around incarceration. This week on The House Always Wins, feature contributors John and Allie, carpentry instructors and the type of people who remind you to turn off the lights when you leave a room, discuss ways to cut your home's energy consumption. I call it housework. Cause it's like work. What you, what you done I'm gonna throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello, everybody. I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Cool stuff. We all love cool stuff. Allie, so here's a good one. Our neighborhood listserv, you know, that email stream. That was you, that was that email stuck in like uh, your archive since the 90s? May, maybe. It was in my Gmail, but you know, we all know what a listserv is, right? It wasn't, right? wasn't your hotmail? So anyway, I, it came through from a neighborhood and someone reached out saying, hey, I've heard from this solar install company. They came by and they looked and they gave me all these really eye-popping numbers of all this amazing stuff that we can, if we install this system on our house, it'll save us all this money and everything. And it almost seems too good to be true. Is this true? Is this real? And is this company really legit? Of course, I responded because we are who we are. Because that's how the listserv works. That's how the listserv works. You can respond and be a troll, which I I hope I wasn't troll-like. But mostly it was like, well, you know, let me tell you my thoughts. And I did respond to her and said, this is something that is important. It's a really good thing you can do because it will save you money and it also will lower your carbon footprint. And so that does kind of beg this question of what are some of the things that you can do as a homeowner to indeed lower your carbon footprint if that's something you're, you're worried about or just live lighter on the land. What do you think of that? Housing, U.S. housing consumes about 21% of our total energy consumption in the country. Wow. Yeah, and, and I know growing up when we first started talking about saving energy and energy consumption, we were always pointing at our cars, right? Right, this was back in the 70s, right? Yeah, when absolutely. The, the, the I was always lines. pointing the finger at the cars for right. using energy and creating pollution. And frankly, a lot of it's happening in our houses. Right. Mostly from heating and cooling, but there's certainly a number of things that we can do to lessen the amount of energy that we use, which is what's going to impact our carbon footprint. So we've been kicking this term around carbon footprint. We probably should say, hey, what, what does carbon footprint actually mean? So carbon footprint is essentially, it's a calculation that accounts for how much fossil fuel you use in your day-to-day life. And you could look at it as a total, including your car and transportation and stuff. But uh, you can also look at it just in your house. But the fossil fuel use definitely contributes to climate change. This is beyond proven clear as... Very, very clearly. Yeah, that's reality on Earth One. Yes, right. So as homeowners or renters, you know, what can we do to impact or shrink our carbon footprint? Because everybody, like you said, everybody's like, oh, the cars, the cars. And there is a big focus on that. But there's actually a lot we can do with our houses, right? Absolutely. So there's a lot of like pretty small, relatively inexpensive things that we can do. And of course, there's like way bigger, expensive improvements you can make. But I would say the first step might be to get an energy audit. And we discussed that in a previous segment. It's Mm -hmm. it's somebody coming in and really looking at your your energy consumption and and providing a list of recommendations. But for some people, that's not going to be in the cards, maybe because of the cost. Maybe if you're a renter, you're not going to be getting an energy audit. Right. But there are, even if you are a renter or you you can't get an audit, then there's still some things that you can do. And and I think like one of the lowest hanging fruits in this (laughs) basket here. That's right. Wait, what? One of the easiest things that you can do and, and least expensive is just swapping 
out if you have any incandescent light bulbs or even compact fluorescent light bulbs or with CFLs, then you can swap those out for LED bulbs. Mm -hmm. LED bulbs use about 75% less electricity than an incandescent bulb does and even about 25% less electricity than a CFL does. Now, I've done this in most of the lighting in my house and I did a lot of it years ago. Mm -hmm. And those earlier LED bulbs, when I started swapping them out, like all of a sudden the dimmers don't work. Right. Or the quality of the light is kind of... Kind of that bluish, greenish. Yeah, you feel like you're... Yeah. A, uh, yeah. yeah, but the bulbs have just gotten much, much better. Indeed. In, in recent times, they're dimmable and there's a more wide range of colors, some warmer colors available. And the cost has come way down. That's just like a couple hundred dollars and you could right away see some savings. Right. And you don't even have to do it all at once. You could just, you could buy some of them and just replace them as you go. And you're right. That's, that's a great place to start. I know I've been doing the same. When I first moved into the house I've been in now for 10 years, there was not a single, uh, they were all incandescents. Mm -hmm. You know, and when we say incandescent, that's the bulb that has the filament that lights, you know, it, it, they get really hot. So yeah, that, that's a great place to start. There's also, there's another area a lot of Wisconsinites have that we should, we should talk about too. And you know what that is, that's the beer fridge in the garage, <laughs> right? Right. The beer fridge in the garage, you know, so, so, hey, you go get a new fridge. Hey, let's take the old one and put it, this new fridge is so much more efficient. Yay. Let's take the old one and put it out in the garage and put beer in it. That is uh, not a great way to save electricity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm conflicted about this one because if I have a perfectly functional appliance, right. there is a cost to the environment to take it out of my house and put it in a landfill mm -hmm. and then get a, a new one, right? And so that's a difficult cost-benefit calculation between the cost of polluting, mm -hmm. putting a, an old appliance in a landfill versus the environmental benefit of one that uses significantly less electricity. And, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that there's always a new appliance. There's always a new there's always electronic a new, that's yeah. better than the last one. It's true. So it's a scale. It's like, yeah, don't replace them every year. But boy, if you've got that old like lime green or, or what were those colors from back in the day? The um, I just removed a Harvest Gold. One Harvest Gold. <laughs> nice. Yeah. If that's the fridge you have, definitely replace that one because the biggest user of electricity in your house is your refrigerator. You're replacing that and making something even 30 or 40 percent more efficient or the Harvest Gold fridge is probably going to be like far better than that. It, that makes a big difference and it will bring your bills down as well, right? Absolutely. That's another great area. Of course, the listserv question that came up to me was it was about a solar install. And as we've talked about, the number one thing you probably should do is get the energy audit if you can improve your insulation, improve your energy uses throughout the house. But right after that, you could consider a solar install. We could probably do an entire section just on a solar install, and maybe we will in the future, but I did it. I have it on my house, and I think this homeowner is going to go forward with it because I actually looked up the numbers again just to make sure I wasn't talking out of my bottom side to this neighbor, and my bills had been $180 roughly a month, and they went down to $30 a month. Oh, wow. That's huge. It is. And I got a 6.4 kilowatt system. It will pay for itself in seven years. So that's a great idea. And I'm hoping that that person will go forward and put that solar system on. But the, like, as we just said, there are definitely other things you can do to change your carbon footprint. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that, that I'm really from the school of thought of you need to use fewer kilowatts before you get all fancy with spending thousands of dollars on a solar um, electric system. Right. But at the end of the day, use less electricity. Right. Absolutely. 
So that's all we have time for today. Maybe we'll circle back to talking a little bit more about solar at a future segment. Sure. But until then, if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry you'd like us to answer, apparently either get on John's list, sir, or <laughs> drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. year, Black Friday sales, traditionally an after-Thanksgiving event, started before Halloween. We've also seen earlier and more frequent requests to buy local. Now, we know that buying local keeps money in the community. However, the reason why an artist makes isn't always a part of the conversation. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, fiber artist A.J. Hughes shares with contributor Jennifer Fields the reason why her hands stay busy. There is always yarn everywhere. It is something that takes up an immense amount of space. Yarn that hasn't been made into projects, yarn that is in the midst of being made into projects, and yarn that is projects that is just piled in places. (laughs) So is it the yarn that drives you or seeing the finished product that excites you so? I look at crochet as a form of like meditation and almost on like really bad days it is like my salvation like it is what saves me from going off the deep end and giving in to those really dark thoughts because it is something I can focus on and then I finish a project and I'm like cool I made a thing and then I can start something else immediately. So then AJ does that project then hold that thing? Does that project become keeper of whatever those thoughts were? I've actually never thought of it that way. I think it's more so just a an act to keep part of my mind busy to distract from the chaos that is life sometimes. Is it then difficult to part with that thing? Because I know it's a distraction, but there's DNA. When you make something, I honestly believe your DNA is in it, especially when you spend so much time doing it. Mm-hmm. And if you're having those thoughts and this object this garment comes out of that thought is it difficult to like part with that dna is it difficult to part with that i can see that where it's like all right this is what i was dealing with while making this and this product helped me process those thoughts there are definitely some items that if i've been making it for a really long time i I'm really hesitant to let it go or I will duplicate it because I liked it so much and then give the other one to the customer. It's definitely hard. There are things where I make so many things in a single day where it's like, okay, these things all hold those feelings, but how do I let go of it and move forward? What is it about yarn that frees you from those thoughts? 
So I've been crocheting since I was about 13 years old. It has been a one of those constant hobbies. I like yarn because you take this string that is like familiar. Everyone knows what yarn is or what it looks like. And then you can turn that into something completely different, something that can take on almost a life of its own. Like I've recently started making like cute little critters and I'm like, oh my God, that's so cute, but so different from like a crocheted top or a sweater that is just something to keep you cozy. Would it be fair or even make sense to say that there are days when crocheting is what gets you out of the bed? Oh, a hundred percent. Like there are days, like I have really bad insomnia, chronic pain. Like, so I'd wake up, mornings are rough, but when I can get up, I, you know, I make my coffee. I feed the annoying orange cat because he has been screaming at me for an hour and I can sit down and start a new project or resume the project that I have been working on and feel good about producing something and being like, okay, I don't feel good today, but I can put my energy into creating this thing that I'm going to give to someone and I can feel good about that. Is crocheting something that it's not going to, it's not a panacea. It doesn't make everything better, but does it do something that sort of reaffirms that sense of self inability? It absolutely does because they're like, I've been, I started getting sick over a decade ago. I am going to be 31 next month. I have, this is what I've always known. And I've lost my ability to work, to be able to like do all those normal things, but I can still do this thing that I love and that brings me happiness and gets me like crocheting has opened doors that I never expected. Like I did a trade the other day with a friend for crocheted things for a tattoo. Like that was something I never thought was going to happen. But that to me is so cool that there are people who like my craft enough that they are willing to trade what they do and what they love for that. Like that feels so special. Like I don't make enough money to support myself on my own, but it feels good when I do make a little bit of extra cash and I can help like even if it's like oh I could buy groceries today or like I could buy my husband like a sweatshirt that he's been wanting because I could afford to do that nice thing for him versus relying on him to always do the nice things for me. I will say one and only one thing (laughs) as the primary breadwinner I might bring in most of the income but when we are tight she's the one that saves our ass. This woman can pull blood from a stone when it comes to the side hustle. So whenever it's like, hey, we're short on bills, she manages to sell something, move something, find a project. So, you know, even if it isn't all of our income, the income she makes is the income that keeps us afloat. My mother would say, it doesn't come right away, but it'll come when you need it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's like... I, I have the panic attack. She has the solution. It It's 100% true. He's always like, I'm freaking out about money. It's like, honey, I like hustler through and through. Like I always can scrape up like a little bit of extra money here and there. Like that is a weird skill that I have picked up over the years. It's like, oh, honey, you need five more dollars. Like, give me like two hours. I'll figure it out. <laughs> 
But isn't that part of the whole creative vibe? It is. Is like kind of scraping by with what you have and making it work. Like that being someone who has a degenerative illness, like that has been my life. Like I wanted to be a nurse. Like I started going to nursing school and my body was like, hell no, you don't get to do that. And... So I had to change my expectations. And this is like one of those things. It's like you just go with the flow. You figure it out on the fly. One thing, though, I want to make sure of, AJ, is that people don't think this is like some secondary thing. It's not a fallback. It's a finding self. Absolutely. Like, if if you know me, you know that crochet is part of who I am. Like, it's not just a thing that I do. Like, I am that crochet girl and it's a part of your fiber <laughs> he's here all week folks because they're married this man's got the audacity <laughs> <laughs> this is my life is this <laughs> but it is something that maintains my sanity when my brain can't figure things out my fingers can figure out how to do the stitches for w-o-r-t I'm Jennifer Fields. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your report tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr and Kingston Robertson, John Stephanie and Ali Biriani, and Jennifer Fields. Faye Parks produced and engineered this newscast with help from Sholly Pittman, WORT News Director. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Tonight you heard good news, interesting interviews, and a lot of local perspectives. You don't have to miss a single episode when you subscribe to the local news as a podcast. Up next is a special edition of the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night.